This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R. We work out our bodies. Let's work out our minds. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. You're like, what is BetterHelp? Why would I go there? Because it's it's online therapy, baby. That's right. You don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, It's cheaper. It's international. So wherever you are in the world, your therapist can go with you. And you don't even have to sit in an office. The best thing is you can do this from your phone. Uh, You can text. You can call. Within 48 hours, they're going to match you up with your own therapist. Some people have their own chef, their own personal trainer. You get your own therapist. How cool is that? And here's the best part. If you don't like the therapist, you can just find yourself another one. You know, They will match you up with another therapist. Because I have friends who are looking for therapist right now and they're saying how hard it is to find one everybody everybody got a therapist now it seems like nowadays so get one and and if you're one of those people who are like well my life is good everything's good i don't need a therapist that's why now is the time to get one because when life hits the fan and and inevitably it does right uh that's not the time to look for a therapist because it takes time to build rapport to connect for them to know your backstory, for you to feel comfortable. So get a therapist now, somebody that you can talk to, build a relationship with, and then you can take a break. But then you have, you know, you got that therapist in your pocket when things do hit the fan, when life does punch you in the face. And then you got that, now it's not even a therapist you're calling, it's a friend, but it's a friend who's gonna, who's gonna like make you feel safe and secure and hold all your secrets and, and show you how to grow and get unstuck. It's, it's the best friend in the world, right there in your pocket, on your cell phone. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is director extraordinaire Lucas Benkin. And uh, you may know him from projects such as uh, Mully, uh, it, an incredible documentary that I can't wait to to get uh, started to talk about, and then also his the new upcoming project, not only from him but Sterling Light Productions, uh, who you know they're heavily involved in only social action campaigns, uh, and so the new project is I Hate You But It's Killing Me, and you may recognize that title because I also just released an episode with Cheryl, uh, who also was a, featured in that documentary called Sterling, uh, or I Hate You But It's Killing Me. So make sure you check that episode out that uh, was released a couple weeks ago. So uh, let's get into it. How are you feeling, Lucas? I'm feeling wonderful. Thanks for asking. How about you? Um, man, you know, we just moved. So we I got that just moved energy where it's exciting and anxiety provoking because you know, when you move into a place, it's so beautiful when you look at it and then you move in, you're like, oh, there's a foundation issue here that we have to, <laughs> oh, the dishwasher doesn't work, you know. <laughs> it's like any relationship, right? You know, yeah. when you meet people, you discover there's history and uh, and you can't see everything on the surface. Yes, sir. There are cracks in the foundation. I'm sorry um, that, man. <laughs> no, but you know what? The, the, what's beautiful is we, you know, we're fortunate that we have the means to address it. You know, that's that's, that's one of the things that I learned playing football is, 
you know, it's not just about staying healthy. It's like, what's your recovery time? Can you recover from what happens to you? That's and, good. Because when you can't recover, that's where you get into trouble. It's really good. Yep. And setting yourself up to have that time. It's, it's that planning that we seem to learn along the way as we gain some years of how valuable that planning is. Well, so I usually start off, my first question is typically, what got you out of bed this morning? And, uh, but I'm not going to ask that question because, I mean, you, you kind of got this LA suit on, right? You got the, you got the <laughs> I just got out of bed hair kind of thing going, but behind you is a barn with like a basketball. So like, like you look like you're going to a meeting in LA, but behind you is like, you're going to shoot hoops in Indiana with your son. Uh, where, where are you right now, man? I am, I am in Atlanta. I'm in the middle of the woods. Um, and I love suits jackets because of their pockets. Cause so many clothes don't have pockets or they're in your pants, but you're sitting down and you can't get things out of your pockets because they suddenly close. And I like carrying a lot of things. So I have a lot of jackets to have pockets. That's my, that's my, one of my passions. Um, I also like having river shoes on ready to jump in and out of the office into my woods slash Creek slash forest walk. Um, recently we moved to Atlanta from California. Uh, we were there 20 years and we moved to Atlanta, my wife and I, uh, for this project, the, I hate you, but it's killing me documentary. A lot of the subjects were on the East coast and it's what, uh, caused me to base ourselves here temporarily to make this film and while here, we fell in love with the new uh, type of nature. The, I enjoy the humidity. I love the creeks and the rivers and the woods. And so we decided to stay. So we are here, South Atlanta, um, which is where a lot of film activity, films kept on continuing to happen while I was out here. So I picked up other films and started to work in, El, in, uh, in Atlanta and Augusta and uh, started creating content. And then I'd fly back to LA and have my hub there and uh, base and team there as well. So what is it? Cause I, I know that Sterling light productions is all about the social action campaigns. What is it about that type of material that, uh, that you're attracted to and drawn to? I, well, here, here's, I always, knew or always being at around 10, 11, 12, knew that I had a passion to make movies that brought light into the world. And it's, it's just purposed. I, I have just come to believe that it's purpose and, uh, and put in me to go and do that. Um, and, and that is what drives me. I am just called to do that. I, I often talk about how things that move us, even in the negative space, as in like make us angry, um, sometimes are hints at what our calling purpose is, because I really have honed my mission statement about my production company to be, I make films that deal with matters of the human heart, uh, specifically in the areas of compassion, forgiveness, generosity, and justice. And I found that through doing things that I didn't care about. And then finding things that I did care about and then things that bothered me, such as injustices and uh, people without compassion 
and lack of generosity, those things I would, I would want to, I was drawn to talk to them about like, Hey, you know, Hey, that's not right. And, and, or, you know, Hey, let's be generous here. And, and so those started to form what I cared to share with people. So I, I was drawn to make these tools, which are films told in story, uh, to even be one additional lesson or, or idea or concept in, in the path of life to treat people better. I really, that's what I care about is, is how we treat each other. Were you bullied in your childhood? Is, is this in response no. to that? Like, no, like where did they, like that guy wears too many jackets. <laughs> my, I would say, I mean, my parents even told me they just always saw me drawn to protect others. Like they would see me go and run up to like, hold a door for someone that was in a wheelchair or if there was somebody being mean to someone else they would see me go and say hey let's talk about this like you know someone taking a ball from another person and me saying you know that you know please apologize for that or you know doing that so which is why i really my my best way to describe it is that that it was in me prior to it being a a response to an effect you know there I think the cause is more just um, purpose. You know, one of the things you mentioned is being drawn to things that bother you. And I remember the second episode I had, I forget it, Dr. Norman. And he said, he told me, you know, off the record, off the podcast to journal, what bothers me. Mm. And I don't do it every day, but every now and again, I come back to that. To, and because that's a word I've never used. And I don't think I've heard a lot of people he, uh, use that except in a negative tone, like, you're bothering me. Stop bothering right. me. But I never right. thought to ask myself, what's bothering me? Mm. A- and it's such a powerful way to uh, lead into journaling. Is there, you know, you, you, you talk generally about, you know, people you know, seeing acts of kindness and people doing things that you felt like, you know, were unjust or unjust. Is there something specific that you would like to resolve that's bothering you? Uh, I mean, I I have a number of places, but specifically, like, for instance, on my uh, film sets, I, I go out of my way and put time and effort and energy at even a cost to time and energy because it matters to employing former incarcerated uh, for a couple of reasons. A, and you know, a number of individuals that have been incarcerated often uh, they were even innocent that they didn't even do what they were in there for. And it has completely wrecked their lives. B, if they did something, especially early on between the ages of 15 and 25 or 14 and 25, they weren't even adults yet that and and their guidance was to do the thing that they did and so that's not their fault in in the system of 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 why others aren't didn't go to prison because somebody helped them for a minute and so they they kind of learned to not do that as a person on the planet you know we we assume so much that individuals um just know how to 
you know, that individuals know how to do a certain thing. Um, and it's not always the case. And so it's, it's circumstantial. <clears throat> and so then, you know, when I was taught, you know, I started working with, um, some organizations in LA and then meeting individuals that, that had suffered these experiences. And then the fact that if you had ever served time and you're 32 years old, uh, that it's extremely difficult to get work because of this, uh, label, this, this historical situation that you did when you were 16 and it perpetuated itself and, and trapped you. And yet your uncle told you to do it. And, and, and I, that, that, that bothers me, you know, that, that, that the system that's supposed to be rehabilitating or guiding or there because you didn't have, you know, is actually damaging and hurting and, and driving a, a different problem. And, and that's a whole world as, as we know of like complex uh, reasons, but so in the film industry, um, there seems to be more opportunity as a producer to decide uh, whether or not someone can work or not. And I found that, you know, more in the, in the corporate model or in bigger business, there, there are a lot of uh, barriers to fill out certain applications. And in this space, we could a still vet people to be, to, to determine if, if their intentions are right, which, uh, which you still need to be safe in employing people. Um, but you can give opportunity and, and have people go through programs and train them in filmmaking and then employ them, uh, because you're the employer. And so, uh, I, but it's harder and, and you're dealing with pro officers and you're dealing with, they, they, uh, got held up because of a situation or they don't have vehicles because they got out, you know, three weeks ago, or you know, all all these extra issues that are difficult. But to my point, like that's not their fault. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna that that bothers me that they're even in that situation. I'm not gonna put that blame on them. We obviously have to run a good movie set, so I can't do it to the detriment of five crew members not coming. But there is a way to balance it and go out of the way to have backups planned and uh, and set a system that works um, to give those opportunities because of the injustice. How, how do you know that making these movies, creating this type of atmosphere and environment on your set of safety, of security, of reaching out to those who have been ostracized, how do you know it's worth it? And I'm asking this because there's so many people who have things that are bothering them and, and have causes they want to be a part of. And then they, you know, they read the news or look at the world and go, is it even worth it? Like the world's about to end, you know, Russia's invading, blah, blah, blah. Like, how, how, how dare you believe that your vision is worth it, Lucas? Yeah. Where is that coming from? No, that's good. Well, I think I think the fastest way to shift that that mindset is is to get very micro. That's a very macro thing that I can never do anything about. I and and in fact, some people can. I I don't I I know people who can 
who have the mind to like how to design a town or like, you know, build a city or city planning and know all of the groups and, and, and people that are needed to do that and all the departments. I see, I can, I can do that. And I'm a, I'm a line producer and a, and a UPM. I can run a movie set with hundreds of people and have departments, but I don't even see necessarily how to run, you know, 12 million people in, in a city and make all that work. That's, that's a skill set, right? So for me to, to go smaller and smaller and smaller, how do I know it's worth it is, is the one-on-one basis, which is even to the, to the point of my documentary where this, I hate you, but it's killing me. I was assigned a question that was general. Can you do a documentary on hate? And I I said, give me 16 weeks to, to research what's out there and, and focus on this and see if I can do a documentary on that. And I found a lot of content on hate. Now, to your point, I was like, I, I can't do anything about this country hating this country or this, this race hating this race or this, the, the males hating females like that. I can't touch that. But, and so I went to the investor after a while. I said, look, I found a lot of documentaries and films on hate, but I haven't found much. I didn't find anything, but but I'm sure there's some out there. I'm I'm always one to say, of course, there's you know I'm not the first to do this, but um, I didn't find much on hate between people that knew each other. I hate my mom. I hate my daughter. I hate my brother, and I haven't talked to him in 30 years. I hate my wife. I, she 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 irritates me to death. I I want out. That I didn't see a lot of film on that, or or even videos on that. Yet I know people talk about it a lot and, and come to find out most people have someone within one distance, as in my uncle or my sister. If it's not you, it's someone in your family that isn't talking to someone because they hate them. And then, well, what do they call it? They might say, oh, I don't hate them, but uh, I do never want to see them again. And I do want to hurt them and I would like them to die, you know, but I don't hate them, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I, for the same, that same thing, if I, if I, now, some of these people that dealt with hate towards their brother, they also grew into hating generally, as in, I hate brothers, or I hate guys, you know, or if you hate your mom, it's like, I hate women, and 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 they grow into, you know, and so even one of the subjects, like the, the one of the lead guys, Donnie, and this, this white man comes and meets his mom and, and takes her away. So that's where his, his hate for white men as a whole started was this, this actual man who was a stepfather who took his mother. Like we, you know, that, that singular story was his cause of it growing generally. And then obviously there were more people that impacted his life negatively that looked like that acted like that. Um, so for, you know, for this other gentleman, his, he hated his mother and it grew to just violence like because she hurt him and then he became just a violent person and hated people really. And, and that, but it started there. So if we get to this root cause, that's when you can potentially see change, how you get to the foundation, right. And you reset that and then you feel safe. And so I would, I just, I just witness that every day. If, if I go and build a relationship with someone and I witness the trajectory of their life, being that, oh, th- there were unjust things. If we start to have just things happen, or even um, awesome things happen, or uh, incredible things happen, 
and then witness that person saying, I am a completely different person because of my life would have been completely like this if I hadn't, that those claims are the evidence. And, and those things for me seem to make it worth it because I just really enjoy, you know, in, in my uh, film, a, a side trailer that I made by this gentleman named Greg Boyle, who founded an organization called Homeboy Industries. Um, you know, he says, I don't care if uh, people love me back. I just love being loving, you know, and it's and it really it was it was a great sentence that has really stuck with me because I I. I don't do it to get right. I just I find it really incredible to witness that we can do these small actions that re, that redirect for the good or bad people's whole lives. And it's the same for me. I've had I've had people that have done one or two actions that have completely lifted me up and and given my you know company opportunities or given me an opportunity that have have reset the course of my whole life. And so it that's where the evidence is. That's what makes it worth it is is how much I witnessed that in my life and if and I'm witnessing it in all the people's lives that I've done small actions for and and the the the, the joy that they have um it it makes it worth it. And I think that's, you know, that quote that says, um, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. You know, that that quote is so powerful because you know, you can be like, you know, what's the point of even why does it even matter if people are joyful? Who cares? You know, and you 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 can definitely choose not to care. You can definitely choose to be sad and frustrated for 50 years. Like, go ahead. I mean, I would rather you not. I would love to encourage you and inspire you to not because it seems to me that that it feels better to not but you know who am i to say you know it, it really has to read off of that person that person may really want to stay there and and that person i can't do anything about but i can continue to be a light um in in the world yeah i i love that you know making it micro because trying to chew it all up at the same time we're going to you're going to choke and kill yourself so it's like how what's the smallest piece i can bite off here and it's true so not enough people talk about hating the people closest to them but yet you know i'm reading about all these murder suicides and it's always you know the wife and the children or you know it's always a family member somebody close to you and yeah. even statistically, we, we know that the violence is most likely to be either to ourselves or to someone close to us. So we're not saying it, but the actions are, are there. Talk to me about Mully. M me and my girlfriend, we watched Mully. And I, I swear, like, every 10 minutes, we're like, what? No, what? Oh, my God, what? No, it's, <laughs> this is, I can't, like, I... You would have thought we were watching Gladiator or like some epic action movie. Just the, the the amount of layers in this. Can you please, for the people, tell them what it's about? Because I feel like not enough people are watching it. And I've also found that when I share it with people, they're kind of afraid to watch it because they think it's going to be darker than it is for whatever reason. Uh, so... Please enlighten the, the, the listeners as to what Molly is about. 
Absolutely. And tell me this, where did, how did you come across it? Uh, on Amazon Prime, and I like documentaries, and uh, it was something that kept popping up, and I was like, all right, let me see what this is, and when I tell you, I was completely blown away by it, and it's so rare that I watch anything all the way through. We watched it all the way through, and it, it was, like, inspiring, and then also, I was like, oh, I got to do more with my life. It, it I don't know. I don't know if you found that or if people have said that, but that's. I feel. I find that that's kind of the, the, uh, uh, what's the word? The the irony or paradox of watching something that's inspiring because it inspires you want to take action, and then you go ah, but that's such a big action, right? Like you 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 forget about the micro. You just remember the macro, like the big action that he took, and so you almost have to calm yourself down. And say, mm-hmm. okay, what's my lead in? I can't start off where the movie ended. Because that's that's what you think about. You think that's about right. starting off where the movie ended. Uh, but yeah, we found it on Amazon Prime. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and, and to your point that that end result of seeing that that large effect and then remembering what what causes that, what what is that the effect of which which is what we based our release strategy on and the campaign on. Because what he did was he rescued two or three children on his street. If you go and do that, then this. And, and, we, and we partnered with adoption and foster care agencies around the nation of the U.S. because that's where we first released it to put out that proposal that, hey, after you watch this, if you want to help, there is a child at your city hall or at your police station that does not have parents do you want to help that child um because you can't and and there's a few around in in your on your street um molly came to me through so just to clarify at the beginning when you when you said director i'm mainly a producer i directed and produced it i hate you but it's killing me but molly was directed by uh business partner, close friend, and a gentleman named Scott Hayes. And uh, he's also an actor, director, writer, incredible artist. He and I uh, were longtime friends. We had founded a theater together at that time in in North Hollywood, uh, which still exists called the Sherry Theater Center for the Arts, which is a place we provided for artists to create. Uh, And he had been contacted by a man named John Bardis that we had interviewed for a prior documentary. And, you know, to, to your point of this, this thing that you witnessed happen, which is really what we ended up calling the Moly effect. You know, John read a book that was called father to the fatherless that was given to him. Uh, and he, he uh, read this book, this man named Wayne Clark, who he worked with, read that book and was so deeply moved and said, who is this guy? What, wait, what? Every 10 minutes, like, (laughs) who is this guy? Ended up being led to this book, shares it with his business partner, John. John remembered this guy, Scott, who came and interviewed him. And he's like, I read this book and uh, I don't know about making movies, but you interviewed me for a doc and you made a really cool video. Uh, Can you help me make this book 
a story because I got to share this message, this story, this, this guy's life, what he did. Um, it's just, wow, it's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And so John enlists uh, myself and Scott Hayes and another producer named Alyssa Shea to come together to see about making really what started out, I believe, as the shaping of a nonprofit video in, in a sense uh, to highlight this man's nonprofit in, in Kenya. Um, and then definitely intended for, to be a documentary, but really what we put out to do was do it as, as strong as possible as a serious documentary in the space of film, uh, and make it soon. And so we, uh, we really, with another cameraman named Justin, uh, hopped to Kenya within weeks, we presented a, a schedule and a budget of how to put the scene together to go interview these uh, individuals that were part of, of this story. And that's what put it together. And we spent the next uh, two years, we, we went over to Kenya for eight weeks and documented these stories. And when we got there, you know, A, it was just incredible to meet uh, Charles Mully and his family, and they welcomed us in. They had known John by then at that time, you know, quite a few years. Um, he had been passionate about their cause and gone to visit them. He had uh, gone on to even create a model or, or replicate the model of what Mully did in another country just to test out this, this idea of uh, rescuing children because the model itself is so impactful and, and, and it works. Um, and we went over there and, and filmed and we found out that Charles had filmed most of his life and had 300 hours of archive tapes of the start of this, you know, organization. Cause he loves movies and just loved filming. So that's, you see that in the movie, like you just have this old footage of, I'm building a foundation. I've built a little, you know, shack in my backyard to teach schooling to these, you know, children. And uh, and uh, we were just we were moved to just put all of our attention on this film. Scott, myself, Alyssa, John, and then the team that we continued to build. And people came on board. And a man named James Mole came to consult for us, who's an Academy Award winning executive producer and producer and director of documentaries. Um, and he really helped lead us in a direction of how, how to do this well. And uh, we went back again to film more interviews and fill in the story. And Scott edited uh, with our editor, Alex McKenzie, for you know another eight months and wanted to perfect this story. So, you know, the, the arc and the build of this is, is really a lot of uh, Scott's carving and, and editorial directing skill. And uh, we finish the film and we start taking it around to uh, festivals, uh, which is, you know, a path that that is really neat, but at the same time, very difficult. The real hope is that someone says that they'll help you share, you know, distribute your movie, uh, which doesn't happen a lot. And especially for documentaries, it's not um, always strong. There are definitely some incredible situations that we know of and hear of that incredible documentaries get picked up and released and have a great impact. I found that every offer that we were getting was, was subpar. And so I 
talked often with the investor about can we can we hold on to it and see if we can create more action around it and this was this is really where there was the the forming of what i do now really stemmed from this opportunity to uh find someone to help me release this film in a in a more impactful way than me checking out the part that I finished this film and go and try and do another one. I like to make films. And then the moment that I have the product, be a part of sharing it with the world and take it for, for however long to uh, save lives. And so we, uh, I, I have a incredible longtime friend and entertainment lawyer named Todd Rubenstein. And he introduced me to a gentleman named Paul Blavin. We had a, a screening uh, at our theater that Scott and I had built. I'd invited him a couple of times. It fell through. He was busy. And then we got to meet up and he saw it and said, I'm supposed to help you release this film. And I'm supposed to be a part of releasing this film with you and making a social action campaign. And he, he designed and had this vision to create a company. He had already started to dabble in this, but he was a longtime businessman who had a change of heart and moved to California to put focus on his family and doing good works. And this is where you start to witness when you're just out doing what you're doing and you just do that and you, you don't not do that and you're just doing that and, and you hold to that, that's when the really the world, the people, God, the design, the, the energy, all of it can, can appear. I mean, it, that is the, the neat thing that we know, like we are designers of our lives. Like we, I can go and do something else right now. I can, you know, um, I can stop doing something right now. And so this, this gentleman, uh, Paul Blavin said, I, I want to form a company called for good and create a social action campaign distribution company. And I said, I want to do that too. Can I do that with you? Can I come with the film? And we do that. He said, Awesome. Let's do it. So we did that. And that is that is what formed the campaign around releasing Moly. We spent the next year and a half, two years, hyper-focused solely on sharing this movie with the world. And that takes time. So we we didn't, we had to, he's an unknown man with an unknown organization just doing his thing in the middle of nowhere. So we had to spend time even just we just did screenings and taking it to organizations and people and went over there with 11 people to introduce the team so that they were all really aware of what happens and how, how it happens and what Molly is doing and that it's real and, and legit and impactful. And uh, we came back and planned this, this campaign us locally to inspire people to be like Molly. And if, if you at least do an action towards others, you're, you're helping the world and helping yourself. You know, that's what Molly always, always talks about how it, uh, it saved his life, you know? Um, and you, so, yeah. Can you share a little bit about Molly's backstory for people? Because Absolutely. right now we just know about the, you know, he took some kids in, but no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Molly's journey is, is one that he, he, you know, early fifties, outskirts of Nairobi, uh, Kenya, poor family. Um, and he was, you know, 
to, to truncate it, he was, he was abandoned by his parents who they, there was a couple of children that he was living in a hut with that the, the parents weren't able to take care of everybody in the family. And so they went off to look for work and left him with what they thought, you know, they, they had intended to leave him with a relative who wasn't really there and didn't really take care of him. So he was just left by himself at five years old in, in a small village. And, uh, and he spent the, the, the next 10 to 12 years of his life on his own uh, as a street kid, sometimes finding a little bit of a caretaker with someone in the community or potentially another uh, relative. Uh, and, and little by little began to hate his life. And he got to the point of uh, suicide and just wanting to die and not press on. You know? And I've talked to a lot of people that go through this where you really just become tired. You know, half, half of the, the, the things that I've witnessed with individuals that would like to die and, and take their life and end it is, is not that they, you know, a number of them do absolutely hate their life and circumstance and one out and, and, and rightfully so even. Some people's situations are extremely tragic and, and harmful and devastating. And I can't imagine living through them and wanting to die, wanting this to be over please, like, can my life, can this life be done and over? But really then when, when you have that, especially as, you know, a youth for so long and already things feel, feel like forever. I talk to kids all the time that, you know, a month feels like forever. You know, when am I going to see my cousin again at um, two months? Oh, that's forever. You know? So when you're dealing with death and wanting to stop the struggle of survival you know, it's, it's really out of tiredness. Like I, I'm just done. I'm tired. But I think that, you know, and, and he says like, he just wanted to die and he was by a river thinking about suicide. And a guy, a kid comes along and invites him to this random revival that was going on, you know, a mile away that this kid was walking to and invites him to this revival. And there was this preacher in this tent who, uh, spoke, words that he never heard before. Like, um, you know, you, you can do all things that are, you know, through Christ and you can work hard and, and be successful and you can, you know, all your past can be washed away. You know, he, I mean, these, these even words and these concepts are so foreign and he believed them and he redirected his life and, uh, said, I, I follow Jesus and God now. And he went off walking to Nairobi for three days as a 17 year old and recommitted his life to living. And he went looking for a job and he got a job. And from there, he just worked hard. And, and what that means is little by little started off as a farmer, became the manager, expanded his own farming and through really, you know, there's so many complex pieces to this, right? Like that kid helped him. This woman that gave him a job redirected his entire life forever. Like if, you know, that woman saying, I'll help you. And then seeing potential in him and then expanding his horizons to letting him be a manager. But he, it was also his, his passion to do, you know, the work that, that drove him. But he ends up getting married uh, and exploding into, you know, over years, getting into real estate, oil and gas, um, and vehicles and a bus system and, and complex, you know, there's something called a matatu, which is the taxi cab started an entire business in Nairobi, starts having children, gets up to eight children, 
numerous businesses, multimillionaire, all the kids going to boarding school in Europe and him traveling to Europe a lot and really just full success of, of an entire life from, from what he was. And interestingly, often in the culture there, you don't really talk about your past. So it's not like anybody ever knew that he was a street kid. Like that's, that's kind of taboo. And, and it's a standard that you don't bring that up, especially if it was bad because of all the stigma and, uh, and opinions of street children. Um, especially there, which is a, a, a tough situation. Um, the third world is, is definitely different than the first world. Uh, and so he, uh, he encounters some of these street kids being a top level businessman in the city and they ask him for help and he really doesn't think anything of it and brushes it off. And, uh, he comes back and they had stolen his car and it was kind of an epiphany. It, it woke him up. He had to take a bus home, which he probably owned. And he was thinking the whole way home. Why didn't I help them? Like it was this breaking point. He had gotten so far to, oh, wait, that was, I literally walked by myself and let that guy starve. You know, it was such a brain break. And I think those times happen. Uh, and I think they actually happen more often than we catch. It's just the time we catch it, we remember. <laughs> and and then maybe we reflect that we passed 30 of them over the last, that there's consistent signs of opportunity to go back to what matters. But, uh, and not that he was doing it bad either. He was a really good man. He was doing good things. He was impacting his community with his business. So it's it's not always that it's like, oh, he went so far to be a bad person. He was a great father, you know, taking care of his children, doing good things. But for him, he, in, in the film, we, we speed it up a little bit as in less time passes between his epiphany and his changing his life. But he, he's driving home one day and he is so consumed with this, he cannot get these children out of his head. And uh, he, he goes, he, he's driving and he tells his, his assistant that he feels sick and he needs to go home and he he's driving home and he feels so sick that he pulls over. And for the next like three hours, he just wrestles with his God and, and feels like he's being told to sell everything he owns, get rid of it all and redirect his life to help street children and stop working for money, stop doing business, stop everything you're doing and go and do this instead. And so those hours in the car is really like just along the bait of, you, you know what you're supposed to do and you really don't want to do that, but, but you can't not, you know? Um, and he decides, you know, to do this and everything is peaceful in his mind, heart, body. He, there's no more struggle. It just goes silent, which I found as well as often this, this sense of like the right decision because something about peace, which is really just settling of the mind that, uh, that, you're there, you're not being asked to do something else. And hopefully you do have a filter of, are you being asked to do something really shady or something really beneficial for you and others? Um, and he drives home and feels this peace and he goes home and he tells his family, all of his children, his wife, I need to tell you guys something. I just had this moment. And for, for really for a couple of years, I've been struggling with this situation of seeing these three kids 
I'm feeling God tell me to sell everything I own and stop all of our business and start helping street kids forevermore. And uh, they freak out. They go through it. They're like, wait, what? No more boarding school, no more drivers, no more cars, no more houses, no more. What do you mean? You know, you're crazy. Um, and it really put, you know, the entire marriage was straightened, the entire family, the church, the, the, the everything that he was giving to you, you when you're an influential person, there's a lot of people um, that depend on you and that expect you to continue doing what you're doing. So he uh, that night goes out and finds some abandoned children underneath a shack in a fruit market where numerous children lived and live without parents and still do today. There's still tons of children living in tires or under shacks by themselves. I was just there in May. I, I, I saw, you know, five and six year olds actually with no parents. I went into a hut that had 11 children and this is in the slum in Cabrera that were being taken care of. Four of them were being taken care of by teenage kids who were the, the remaining people of that family because the parents had died and the aunt left. And so the teenagers are taking care of these four or five years, literally, as, as in like, that's just, that's just the way it is there. Um, he, he goes home and brings three of these kids home and, and, and hands them to his wife and says, so we're going to take these children in and then tells his children, these are your new brothers and sisters. And, uh, he moves them into the house and they start putting them in certain rooms in the house. Here's, here's your room. Here's your new brothers and sisters. We're going to take care of you. Here's your food. We're your new mom and dad. And, and he started doing this and got to 10 and 12 and 18 and 20 and 30. And they started plowing out the backyard and building shacks and, and houses and, and little additional rooms to start schooling. You, you know, you start have to add on all the things, you know, you need another person to help with food and chef. And so they had started to sell off businesses. Obviously, it doesn't just immediately happen. So you're selling a building, you're letting go of some employees, you're putting that money towards uh, someone to help in the in the schooling or caretaking. And uh, and then started bringing these kids to church. And, and that was a problem because now you've got these drug addict street kids who may have been in and out of any number of things or they just... Uh, you know that they are orphans who are not clean. And, you know, this, this assumption about these people of which this, you know, these churches preach about helping. And now when it gets real, um, it's questioned about, you know, wait, what do you mean orphans and widows in our church? It's like, that's, this is what you describe yourself to do. <laughs> Take care of the orphans and widows. Um, so he actually gets kicked out of his church um, completely. At, at one point, he had 300 people, you know, kids in his backyard and house and property to where he actually got kicked out of the town, the community that he was in. You know, imagine if you're in a certain suburb and you start, you know, leaving cars and, and shacks in your backyard, you, you know, people start pushing you out. So he ends up uh, turning, they, him and his wife had had a retirement property that was a couple of acres way out in the homeland where he had grown, you know, was, came from Machacos County. And he, uh, he moves out to Delani with his whole family and, 
about uh, a thousand children and says, we're going to go out and build a dream place where we're going to grow our own food. We're going to have water. We're going to live safely and free. And we're just going to create a community out there because nobody, we can't stay here. And, and I have this piece of property and we're going to set this up and I'm gift. I'm doing this with that. Um, and they start doing that and it's extremely difficult. And that's, you know, what we, we always have to realize like these, these callings, like they're not easy, but like, what is, you know, like, I mean, even, even staying up with our bills is difficult and even trying to move is difficult. And even, you know, keeping it all going is difficult. So, uh, so, so then it becomes like, well, then what am I doing it for? But he ends up, uh, taking all these kids out there and it's extremely difficult. They, they, they're, they find out that there isn't water like they thought there was. Um, and then little by little, small and true miracles just actually happen. There is no water. They, they hired, you know, he's a, he's a super wise businessman. You know, in the film, we don't dive into every part of it, but they had hired five companies to like come out and drill boreholes like on a legitimate scale, the way you plan cities and find water. And, you know, you have these five legitimate agencies who have the best equipment in, the, in that area say that there is no water here, according to history, according to maps, according to all of our drilling 800 foot boreholes, you have no water here. And then you say, fine, I'll dig it myself. And you have you and your kids dig it and find water <laughs> and, and, uh, and hit water and discover it. Like, I don't know what better word there is than miracle. And, and why not believe that it's a miracle anyway? I mean, if you have, and, and that's what miracles are. 100 people say you can't and that it's not. And then it is. Like, call it a miracle. Believe in that. You know, it, there's another quote that I'm, I'm sure you've heard, or, you know, it's out there by, we don't actually know who said it. I think they say Einstein or a couple of people, but, you know, it's, there's people who believe that everything is a miracle and some people believe that nothing is. Like, cho you choose it. Believe it's a miracle. <laughs> but suddenly, these thousands of children have water and they didn't. And, uh, and that let the area thrive. And they end up, building how do i have a couple more minutes or should yeah you got a couple more minutes off? yep so they they end up you know over the next many years through a lot of hardship and amazing blessings building you know a an eco village they 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 start farming and selling the food to sustain the property they start a school that becomes number 1 in the entire district which, you know, it's politics are real. Like they, they were like, first off, you can't even start a school because these are all street kids and they'll bring our average down. Then you start trying to do it anyway. And then these, this over tons of trials and tribulations, they become the number one school in the entire region and district. And the same thing happened with sports. You know, they start like, a, you know, these kids, these street kids running around in the dirt. And I mean, even today, I, I just got a newsletter yesterday that they are one of the top they've just moved through the ranks of what's possible in kenya and now they're a 
country recognized top level team playing it at the most elite levels. Same in every sport that, you know, I think it was four of the seven individuals that qualified for the Olympics in karate were MCF street kids, you know, I mean, just, just, just incredible potential, uh, stories of just love. Um, but they, they become this self-sustaining community with this vision and this model that's this holistic approach of family. And that's really what this whole message and, and what everyone witnessed was this model of Mama Esther and Charles Mully integrating a child who has no family into their family with their brothers and sisters, which was was sometimes wanted and sometimes not just like I didn't want my brothers and sisters a couple times. And just like, I'm glad I have them now that I'm older, you know, and then, and then still the headache that they are and then not, you know, and still the headache that I have with my parents and not, and the blessings. So it's, it's life, it's family, it's real. Um, and so they became family and, and once they believe their family and once he taught these children about future tense. You know, when you're, when you're struggling for survival, you don't even have a concept of tomorrow, literally, as in when, when you talk to someone who today didn't know if they would eat, they, you, it's, it's a very interesting thing. You look in their eyes and you're like, you know, you can't, the thought of what am I doing this weekend has never crossed my mind. I don't know if I will be alive tomorrow. I don't know that. And so it takes months to even come to know that you're going to be alive tomorrow to even talk about the weekend, to even talk about a month ahead, to even talk about planning your future, to be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what does that even mean? That's, and that's where we deal with assumptions a lot. Like, you know, there's such a drastic gap between knowing. And there's so many things that we learned as, as, a child and and the, the millions of things we input into our language that you hear even from zero to two. Like, and, and in fact, in my documentary, I hate you, but it's killing me there. There's eight week study guide that, and the first questions are like, what, what was your, what was your life like when you were in the womb? What, what were you hearing? Cause you were hearing and what was zero to two? What were you witnessing and hearing for years that you actually don't even have a memory of? I don't remember before four years old, but, but I was there and it impacted my life and my brain and my, you know, my whole being. So when you watch a 16 year old kid, like reframe over, it takes a while, their, their entire future. That's, that's what he's giving them. He, you, but you can only get that after a long period of, of safety. So not only if you're brought in to be fed, but if someone kidnaps you and brings you in and feeds you, but you're still unsafe, you you can't ever let up of the fight or flight, like, you know, panic of, of life. You're definitely thinking, how can I get out of here? But that's it. You know, talk to me with uh, we have a few minutes and uh, but the I hate you, but it's killing me. How did people resolve the hatred for our listeners out there? Because a lot of us are carrying around hatreds towards our loved ones, maybe even towards ourselves, resentments. You know, I'm in a 12-step program. We talk about a lot about resentments. How did you find in the documentary people were able to forgive and let go, if at all? Various ways. 
and that and that's what I want to point out and and continue to try to point out is there there is a number of ways and and a number of ways we describe it because it's so hard to define things and use words, um, which is why I'm very careful to even say, you know, the, because it's it's not even necessarily forgiveness, you know, because some things seem, especially to those in it, unforgivable. And, and perhaps they are, and perhaps you don't even, and, 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 you know, everybody, we assume so much that words mean words, that, that my definition of forgiveness means your definition of forgiveness, which it could be completely different. And so it's so hard to use words of how, you know, how, which is why in this film, I follow, you know, I filmed 64 interviews of people's journeys of how they did it. Cause I, I, I didn't do it in the way that these guys did it. And so I, I just let them tell how they did it. And there, you definitely start to see through lines and similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. Um, and we follow about nine to 16 people. And I, I use that range because there's some people we focus on more that you'll remember. And then others, individuals that part of their stories in there of how they uh, did it. But the words that you did use these, these, you know, letting go of releasing, moving past forgiving. Um, they're all towards the same action. And what, what I, I released this on my, on the website, I hate you, but it's me.com is where we're, uh, selling tickets to this premiere event, which is really the beginning of hopefully a long-term relationship with this community. That is this hub of healing healing, you know, from, from hate to healing, hate to health. How, how do we get healthy? How do we become healthy minded? Uh, cause really it's just an unhealthy experience. You know, what is what hate is. Um, but the, the premiere is an interactive event where we can chat during it. We'll have a moderator. We're going to do a Q and a afterwards, but really there's this eight week course, which really helps you just ask questions about where you're at within your experience of, of hate. And, and like you said, I think, you know, the audience for this is very specific. It's, it's very private. Most people don't tell you that they hate their brother. It's not something that comes up for quite a while. I actually recently, you know, a buddy of mine who I've known for seven years just told me he had a brother and I didn't know about him because he doesn't talk to him and he intended not to tell me. <laughs> so, you know, there's, it's, it's private, which is what, how I think the community of this film's reach will be. Not everyone's going to say, Hey, you got to, see this or guess what I'm going to go watch on this night. It's, it's at 2 AM when you, you actually sat with your family and saw something pop up on the screen that was on Netflix. And you didn't even tell them that I'm marking that down to watch in a week, you know, because I need to see that. Or I'm very interested in what is this? I hate you, but it's killing me. Like, how is that possible for some people? It's like, no, like it's supposed to hurt the other person. And so it, I guess, let, let me say, the answer like this, I found that the initial thing that starts any of it and all of it is a counting of wrongs that I, I, I at least write down that you wronged me. That is the first and foremost action that must be done in order to even get to hate. You actually cannot get to hate if you cannot start with that seed. So knowing that if, if I have to figure out well, when have I ever counted 
that wrong. And if I can go back and, and track where was I first wrong, first wrong, because that first wrong turned into a consistent accounting of wrongs. And then a repetition of that. I've been wronged. 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 At that repetition of con continuing to tell myself builds that resentment. You can't get to that resentment if you if you haven't been wronged, right? And so that's and and uh, I I liken a lot of this to program. You know, one of my main, main subjects is this guy named Sammy Rangel. He actually developed an approved course called uh, it's the twelve step course for uh, formers, and it's called Formers Anonymous. And it's it's exactly the twelve step for anyone that's ever been in prison, and uh, and it's a recovery program, and it's it's incredible. And uh, Sammy does a lot of work in that space, um, but I I really believe in that program uh, extremely. I've seen numerous people gain you know a their even their faith back. Even people that you know are in the faith communities or not, recovery helps guide them back to some sort of real realization that they are some form of a spiritual being dealing with a spiritual matter. But I would say that account, the, the way that people got out of it is exactly what you're saying. You have to go back. You have to go back and see where did this start? That That's step one. I appreciate you sharing that, Lucas. And, and where can people find I hate you, but it's killing me? So we are, what I'm doing for this film is having one place and I'm going to stream it on its own website. I hate you, but it's killing me.com. And the reason is I, I don't want to be on a number of platforms in a number of places because I want to just say, Hey, here's where we meet. This is the place. This is where we meet. This is where you can get your resources, your people. You can talk about this. I'm going to be creating a, a discord server where it starts to become this community prior to the film. And those are all going to be the people that are going to this premiere event. And then therefore it's very much like a store opening. It, different than often films get pushed for about one, two weeks. It's big, big response. Great. I went and saw it and then it, it dwindles and then it's available, but not a lot of chatter. Uh, I, I will keep this store open and keep this place that we can continue to go to and have this community built where we can talk about our stories, send other people there that are suffering with it. So the film along with an eight-week program. And I also extract the four main stories, which are all different ways of dealing with hate, into 15-minute sections. And when you buy this movie ticket that comes with the, the movie and all these assets and videos, are these four videos as well that you're able to share so that you can share a girl's you know, suicidal story with someone that's dealing with that uh, or a man who's dealt with you know hardcore prison life that's dealt with that because you can't, always pitch an hour and a half documentary to someone who's dealing with suicide and is 15 years old. They don't need to see and, and aren't interested in hearing all that, but maybe they might watch a 10 minute story on a girl who actually tried to commit suicide twice you know, in this video. So, so I, I want to, I'm trying to create tools and, and pieces of content that help people. So I have like 40 